Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 4, Changing Woman. I'm Brandon Seal. There's something that bothers me about Killer of Enemies, that legendary first Apache. Think for a second about what we've learned about these Plains Apaches. They're alliance makers, not war makers, at least not as a first option. They seem to live by and respect the cycles of life, meaning both the ups and downs of human relationships but also even the literal cyclical migrations they would make each year through their enormous domain, from Kansas to Coahuila, from the Rockies to the Rio Grande. They're absorbers of people, not annihilators of them. In short, they aren't just killers of enemies. There's another very different mythical figure in Apache stories that appears much more rarely and yet seems to have been a sort of counterpoint to killer of enemies. Appropriately for a figure referred to as Changing Woman, she appears in multiple forms, much like the moon with which she was associated. Most often, however, she is either Killer of Enemies' companion or, more often still, his mother. And when you think about it, doesn't alliance-making, a reverence for the cycles of life, and a preference for cultural absorption over annihilation sound much more appropriate to a Changing Woman rather than a Killer of Enemies? So what if Changing Woman is perhaps the real avatar of the Plains Apaches, not Killer of Enemies? There's other reasons to suspect a more prominent role for Changing Woman in the prehistorical period. The Plains Apaches, and particularly the later Lipan Apaches, were matrilineal and matrilocal societies, meaning not only did they define their families by their mothers, matrilineal, but new Lipan husbands would leave their families and move in with the families of their wives, matrilocal. This may be a part of the reason why Apache political structures were so hard for Europeans to make sense of. The kinship-based networks that sat at the core of Apache identity were built off of relationships between Apache women, where Europeans never thought to look, and so accordingly, never bothered to write down. In the words of a modern-day Lipan friend, quote, We had a leadership tradition that the Spaniards' minds couldn't understand and doesn't yet understand today, end quote which unfortunately makes Lipan women nearly invisible in the historical record, even when they seem to be at the center of events. The story of early San Antonio, however, offers some of the most tantalizing evidence of the central role of these figurative daughters of changing woman in Apache life. Just off the southeast corner of the Edwards Plateau, at a collection of springs that the natives called Yanawana, the San Antonio River Basin hosted a sizable community of as many as 500 Coahuilatecans tending their gardens, gardens that they may have actually already been irrigating before the Spanish arrived. The Plains Apache had watched with curiosity and perhaps no small amount of indignation when in 1718 the Spanish plopped a village down right on this spot, right in the middle of an established Apache trading route and adjacent even to a favored Apache campsite at the convergence of Alasan and Apache Creeks inside modern-day San Antonio. This clearly violated the agreements of previous decades, which permitted Spanish movement along established corridors, but said nothing about settlement. Still, the Plains Apaches tried to remain open-minded. Maybe San Antonio could be used to strengthen trade, and thus political bonds, between the Spanish and the Plains Apache. 
They had indeed missed the Spanish trade of New Mexico for the dozen years it was gone, and they had seen how the arrival of the French turbocharged the militaries and economies of their East Texas Catoan-speaking rivals. But from the Plains Apache perspective, this was also the confusing thing about the establishment of San Antonio. It coincided with the founding of a handful of missions in East Texas amongst the Apache's Catoan-speaking Tejas rivals. The Spanish had tried this before in East Texas in the 1690s, at the urging of Juan Sabayata in the previous episode, and had converted exactly zero natives to Christianity before they were run out of the state. Because what the Plains Apache could see, and the Spanish never really could, was that these Catoan speakers already had their preferred European trading partner. The French always seemed to be just a little better wired understanding the kinship-based nature of Native American societies. Instead of focusing on reducing them into missions or removing them, the French intermarried with Native Americans and created lasting trade networks, which is to say they used much the same tactics that the Plains Apaches and their ancestors had. Within a generation, at least two enormous French-supplied Catoan Pawnee villages numbering in the tens of thousands had sprouted up on the northern plains, rivaling and soon challenging the dominance of the Apaches hub at El Cuartelejo. Prior to this, the Apaches had exploited their temporary monopoly on the horse to raid the Catoan-speaking peoples with impunity and sell these captives to a hungry Spanish slave market. But the French alliance soon neutralized the Apaches' mounted advantage, very specifically in the form of access to French guns. The Apaches would struggle for the next hundred years to get reliable access to firearms. And so to see these Catoan speakers get a Spanish trading presence in East Texas now, in addition to their French one, was more than the Plains Apache could tolerate. The Plains Apaches expressed their opposition to the East Texas missions through the universal language of violence, albeit in a measured and almost performative way. In 1718, they hit two supply trains coming up from Monclova to provision the first San Antonio mission, though once again, they were more warnings than serious attacks. In 1721, the Apaches hit another supply party, but that didn't work either, and so they hit harder. In 1722, a four-man Apache crew went out and rounded up the presidial horse herd at San Antonio, escaping into the hill country with as many as they could. Violence might be the most universal language, but it's also the most imprecise. And the captain of the San Antonio Presidio believed that the roundup was just plain old horse theft and decided to punish it accordingly. He sent out his men in pursuit of the Apache Wranglers, captured them, and decapitated them. The Plains Apaches were appalled. It was like a squatter shooting the landlord for trying to collect the rent and then decapitating him. And worse, to rub salt into the wound, they learned that the presidial captain had been promoted precisely because of his savage attack on their brothers. The Plains Apache responded by riding into San Antonio and shooting two arrows into the ground right in front of the presidial captain's quarters. Red cloth dangled from each of the arrows. In any language, it was a declaration of war. Up on the Brazos River, they caught a Spanish priest out alone and they killed him. They then attacked a pair of Presidial soldiers who came too close to their cornfields in Holotus, Texas, killing and scalping one of them. And on August 17, 1723, they once again rounded up the Presidial horse herd and made off with 80 of them. As before, however, the Presidial commander came after them. Except 
He didn't bother this time to try to find the Apaches who had rounded up his horse herd. Instead, he set his troops upon the first Apache community that he found, a community that had had nothing to do with the recent violence. And on September 24, 1723, he attacked them in their sleep. The San Antonio Presidio commander killed 34 Apache men, including their captain, captured 120 horses, 40 more than he had lost, and took 20 women and children back with him as captives. A particularly bold Apache woman, a figurative daughter of Changing Woman, I like to imagine her, was among the captives. She came forward to the Presidio commander and began to speak through an interpreter. She explained her people's insult at seeing the Spanish settle a new community right on the Apache San Antonio Road. She explained the restraint that her community had shown during their discussions internally as to how to handle these Spanish interlopers. And she tried to explain the injustice at watching the Spanish supply the Apaches' Caddoan rivals in the east without even trying to treat with the Apaches whose land they were on. The Apaches wanted the Spanish as partners, she continued. It was a tragedy in their eyes that they couldn't have Spanish friendship without violence and without more specifically slaving, which still continued and which, frankly, these 20 captive women and children were probably now headed for. The Spanish had shown their strength, she acknowledged to the commander, but their disproportionate response to Apache horse roundups also showed their fear. Might not Spanish and Apache be better served by a peace? This Apache woman, whose name we don't know, shows up in the historical record simply as a really chatty captive. But there's clearly more to her than that. First, to have the boldness and presence to confront her kidnappers immediately after witnessing them kill 34 of her relatives, well, that's something. And second, she was apparently quite persuasive. A Franciscan priest picked up her reasoning and complimented it with anecdotes of his own from the El Paso region where he had seen how cycles of violence against native only perpetuated more violence. Outnumbered now by the priest and this figurative daughter of changing woman, the presidial commander agreed to try for peace. He told the Apache woman he would release his 20 captives if she could convince any nearby Apache captains to come into San Antonio for a peace council. Once again, the Spanish commander was insisting on interpreting Apache politics through the lens of male authority, but still, he was offering peace. And to show he was serious, he gave her a horse and on October 7th, 1723, sent her off into the hill country. When this Apache woman rode into her village a few days later, she found 500 Apache men preparing to assault San Antonio, which is unsurprising and which undoubtedly would have ended poorly for Spanish San Antonio. But this woman apparently convinced them to halt their plans. She explained the negotiation that she had opened with the Presidio commander, which actually wouldn't have been that unusual for an Apache woman to have done. Throughout this period, and pretty much throughout native Texas, it's women who carry out the peace negotiations. It's women who conduct the alliance making. So take that to its logical conclusion. A people defined by their alliance making prowess, conducting that alliance making principally through their women leaders, and you see why I think Changing Woman plays at least as large a role in Plains Apache thinking as Killer of Enemies. A five-day war council ensued as the men and women of five Plains Apache nations debated the best course of action. There was no doubt that they could wipe San Antonio off the map if they so desired and drive the Spanish back below the Rio Grande. 
They had done exactly that in New Mexico just 40 years prior. But they probably considered how disadvantaged they would then be against their French-supplied rivals if they lost all access to Spanish goods. And maybe they remembered what their mythology had taught them about their moral obligation to treat even with people who had wronged them badly. A lesson that, again, makes a lot more sense coming from the mouth of a changing woman than from a killer of enemies. The 1723 Plains Apache War Council chose peace. They chose to accept the Spanish trading post at San Antonio, and they went to go see the Presidio commander. On October 29th, the Apache woman returned to San Antonio, and this time she carried with her a gold-tipped baton. The same gold-tipped baton, it seems, that a different Spanish commander had given to a Capitan Grande of the Plains Apache near El Cuartelejo in Kansas 17 years prior and 700 miles away. He's out for a second the implications of this gesture. The first, of course, is what it confirms about the extent of the Apache Empire. The second is what it says about their unity. Throughout this season, I'm supposed to describe the Plains Apaches as fickle and loosely organized into bands that formed and reformed on a whim and for only so long as a particular captain could command obedience. The alternative interpretation is that the Plains Apache were a highly unified people, simply that they weren't unified by the oppressive bureaucracy of a nation-state, but rather by familial and kinship bonds that European chroniclers didn't know how to record because they were based on the relationships between Apache women. And third, the gold-tipped baton seems to suggest that the collective authority of the Plains Apaches could be handed, at times at least, to a woman, like the Apache woman carrying the gold baton now into her conference with the San Antonio Presidio commander. But all of this subtext was lost on the Presidio commander. Maybe he just didn't want to see it. In any case, he refused now to honor his initial offer to release the captives, even as the Apache woman had in fact brought a male captain with her. The Presidio commander now demanded that more Apache captains come in to negotiate with him and continue to hold the 20 Apache women and children captive as security against this second peace conference that he demanded for December. The Apache woman and the captain in her company reluctantly agreed and dutifully returned in December with more male captains as requested. But once again, there seemed to be a problem. Instead of a peace ceremony, the Apaches rode into the middle of a heated argument between the Presidio commander and the Franciscan priest that had been so persuaded by the Apache woman a few months prior. The Presidio commander had decided now that he needed an unconditional promise of peace from all the Plains Apache captains before he would even consider returning the 20 captives. And the priest was calling him out for changing the terms of his demand right in front of the Plains Apache woman and the other captains. The Apache emissaries picked up on the nature of the argument and ever the alliance makers even offered the Presidio commander an alternative. The male captains themselves offered to switch places with the captives as security while they sent once again for more captains to continue the negotiations. But even this seemed to not satisfy the Presidio commander. After a while, Plains Apache stormed out, infuriated and confused. They had tried to take the Spanish commander at his word and it appeared now that they'd just been strung along. Was this like a good cop, bad cop thing? Because even as they were leaving, the priest was telling them not to give up and was offering them, for the first, not the last time, a mission in Apache territory. Something, however, that was decidedly less attractive now if it would bring with it Spanish soldiers like the Presidio captain. 
the Plains Apaches returned to their people and made the heart-wrenching gamble to negotiate no further with the San Antonio Presidio commander. And it worked. About a year later, he gave in and released the 20 captives, which was, in its own way, a validation of the strategy advocated by our nameless Apache woman, inspired by the example of changing woman and her lesson of patience through the cycles of human affairs. To be sure, it was also an acknowledgement of Apache power and a desperate bid for continued peace while fledgling San Antonio tried to find its footing. In that sense, it worked, but only because the Plains Apaches had been drawn to the other side of their empire to deal with a new threat. Sometime around 1720, demographic waves swept down onto the Plains Apaches from the northwest. It was a 40,000-man strong wave with their own horse herd. These newcomers from the north, Comanches, they came to be called, were the only other natives, quote, equal in manliness to the Apache with whom they wore, end quote, according to a contemporary Spanish chronicler. Comanches broke the Plains Apache monopoly on the horse, and around 1723, they broke through to the Catawans and French on the eastern plains. Following the checkerboard geopolitics of the plains, these Comanche and Plains, Catawans, and French formed an epic alliance. Comanche's horses and French Catawans' firearms were a lethal and as-yet-unseen combination in Native America. And together, this alliance of French-armed mounted Plains Indians descending into Apache, Texas from the north would come to be known as Norteños. The Plains Apaches fought these Norteños back for decades. Two large battles in 1706 near their trading hub of El Cuartelejo in Kansas ended in draws, and an Apache retaliatory raid briefly drove the Catawans and the French as far back as Nebraska. It was increasingly clear, however, that without guns, and outnumbered perhaps ten to one by these Norteños, that the Plains Apaches were isolated on the checkerboard. The Plains Apaches realized it was too late to frustrate the Comanche-Catawan-French alliance, and so they went on the offensive. Sometime in early 1724, they raided almost 1,000 miles into Comanche territory. The Comanches, with their Norteño allies to back them up, retaliated in turn, and somewhere near modern-day Wichita Falls, at a spot known as El Gran Sierra del Fierro, the great peoples clashed. This is hard for a Battle of Medina fanboy like myself to admit, but from the scant details we have, the Battle of Gran Sierra del Fierro may have in fact been the largest, bloodiest battle in Texas history. Thousands of Norteños, and perhaps every available Plains Apache of fighting age, arrayed against each other, in what legend would record was a nine-day running battle. No mercy was given, no quarter shown to combatants and non-combatants alike, and hundreds were massacred during and after the battle. According to one Spanish chronicler, quote, the enmity remained so great after the battle that the Indians of these nations rose up on Judgment Day, their bones would fight one another, end quote. Eventually, the Apaches, though, quote, more courageous and more warlike than the Comanches, were forced to yield to numbers, end quote. By the time this 1724 battle was over, the Plains Apaches had lost the Northern Plains, including their wealthy trading hub at El Cuartelejo and the rich buffalo ranges of the Texas Panhandle. The French were now provisioning their old Catawan-speaking rivals in the east, and the Spanish had shored up their settlements in New Mexico, along the Rio Grande, and in San Antonio. Opposite-colored checker squares surrounded the Plains Apache now on all sides. Is there a sense, then, in which this moment marks the passing from the age of changing woman to the age of killer of enemies? 
The chroniclers of the Plains Apaches, mostly their enemies we should remember, suggest that this was the case. But the historical record always prefers the high drama and precise dates of battles to the messy work of alliance-making and relationship-building. And rather than a renewed commitment to violence, I think what we're about to see next is an intensified effort precisely at alliance-making. I don't think that the example of changing woman ever stopped reminding her people that history moves in cycles. Like the buffalo from summer to winter pasture, like the first Apaches cycling out of the Guadalupe Mountains, like the whirlwind itself, which occasionally dies down before finding the energy to reform where it's least expected. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez-Davila, Nancy McGowan-Miner, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas in the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.